We'll start reading in John 19, verse 5. Just before this, uh, Jesus had been given, handed over to Pilate, and he was scourged and put a purple robe on him, starting in verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to, to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that, that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in judgment in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha where they crucified him and two others, and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put, on it, put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. How do you measure greatness? How do you measure greatness? We like to rank things, don't we? We like to put things in categories and say, well, this is greatness if you get to fill in the blank. You get to the point where you're a Warren Buffett type or you're a Bill Gates type, where you've got billions and billions and billions of dollars, more zeros than I'll ever see in my lifetime in your bank account, then that means you're great. Maybe people talk about greatness with regard to getting to the point where you have all these letters after your name, academic greatness where you have this institution and that institution and their accreditation behind you to where they can say, as far as this field of psychology or this field of, of study, you are great and we're going to look to you. Hey, people want to talk about greatness in terms of geography. You ever hear the term that America is the greatest nation on the face of the earth? People want to talk about greatness with regard to those things as well. How do you measure greatness? If I were to ask you this morning, who's the greatest in the assembly? Who's the greatest in the assembly? Some might point to the elders and say, well, those elders that have met the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, man, those men are great. There's a sense in which elders are great, and yet could they really be classified as the greatest? 
Maybe you could look at the preacher, the man who's standing before you, and say, well, he's got to be the greatest because he's the one that gets to stand up and, and, and visit with us 30 to 40 minutes uh, every Sunday, and, and, and we get to listen to him, and may, he's the greatest. You know, it's his church. There's a sense in which bearing the gospel and preaching the gospel is great, but it certainly doesn't make you great. When we talk about greatness, brothers and sisters, we are and will always be wrong if we never measure greatness except by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We're never going to be right when we begin to categorize ourselves as greater than this person or greater than this person, well, maybe less great than this person, if we never orient our lives and our hearts around the sacrifice of Jesus we will always be wrong about what greatness is and about certainly where we stand. You remember Paul, the Apostle Paul, as great as he was, and some would term him as the greatest apostle because he was the one that had the mission. And, and if you look in the book of Acts from th- chapter 13 on, but the, the book of Acts is really centered around Paul and upon his ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, in our Bible class this morning, we read from Acts chapter 22, and Paul there standing on the steps of the fortress Antonia and given permission by the Roman commander to speak to his Jewish brethren who just moments before were ready to kill him. Paul says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was a Jew that had this upbringing here in Jerusalem. And in fact, later on in Philippians chapter 3, as he would write this from prison, he would tell us that he was a Hebrew among the Hebrews, that there was no charge in the law that could be found against him. And you know what Paul said about himself? When he came to Corinth, when he began to preach in a city that was known for its eloquent speakers, you know what Paul said? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. When I was with you, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why would you do that, Paul? You've got all these skills. Maybe you've got this academic prowess. Maybe you've got this this wonderful oratory skills to where you can give grand speeches and you could have just wowed those Corinthians. And Paul said, instead, I was with you with weakness and fear and much trembling because I wanted for you to see that the power was from God and not from me. It wasn't about being a grand speaker for Paul. It was about him upholding Jesus And lifting up and saying, behold the man on the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. With all of Paul's power and all the ways that Paul could have said, look at me, I'm great. Paul said, look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look and see what he's done for you. Because if I try and uphold myself and I try and uphold my prowess or my financial abilities or my, my, uh, who I know and those things... I'm always going to be wrong. Friends, we're looking at the cross this morning, the cross of Jesus. I appreciate Kevin reading from John chapter 19. And yet at the same time, as we think about Jesus and his trial and his crucifixion, I want you to know that God's measure of greatness is based upon what Jesus has done because God has, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we look at ourselves, and we look and we see who we are, there is no better measure than to look at what God has done through Jesus at the cross. I want to give you three things to think about this morning with regard to God's work 
with Christ on the cross to help us better understand who we are and where we stand with relationship to the cross. First thing I want you to do is look at this number one. Look at the loss of the cross. He died for us. I'm going to give you a number of passages, and I'm only going to ask you to turn to one. If you want to turn there, begin with Hebrews chapter 10. Notice, the Bible is not mince words with regard to the purpose why Jesus went to the cross. In fact, you begin in Psalm 22 and verse 1 and with words of Jesus and what he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to be translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, if you look at it in context, it's all about the cross. It's all about the suffering that Jesus went through. And as David felt those things and as David looked at those things, he was foreshadowing what Christ would feel uh, a thousand and 1,500 years later when Jesus was actually up there on the cross. But Jesus in crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a sense in which Jesus was separated from God on that occasion. Why? Why? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us that he was the one that bore our sins in his own body. There was a part of what you did and what I did. There was the whole of the sin and the, the category of, of the things that we do on, that are wrong on a daily basis that Jesus took on himself and he took with him there to the cross to the point where God separated himself. God turned his face away from Jesus and what he did. Bible says, same book, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Jesus has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus go through what he went through? He did so because he knew that was the only way to pay for the price of sin and to bring us to God. He died for your sins and for my sins. As we look at the cross, he tasted death for everyone. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. And in fact, that's that context of that verse talks about him humbling himself and how God has made him a little lower than the angels for the purpose that God can glorify him from Psalm 8. We see that Paul would talk about Jesus and his sacrifice in terms of the law. He would make him who knew no sin to become a curse for us, to uh, hold on to the curse. And he would say in that context to Galatians chapter 3 that there was a, there was a law uh, in, the, in the Old Testament that talked about the fact that there was a curse that was pronounced on anybody that hanged on a tree. And Jesus became that curse for us. He said, God, who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look at this from Hebrews chapter 10. I ask you to turn there just a moment ago from verses 10 to 14. As the Hebrew writer begins to wrap up his sermon, as the Hebrew writer begins to wrap up, he's talking about the, the purpose for those uh, animal sacrifices and how they were insufficient to, to take away sin on a permanent basis. And notice what he says about the Christ's work on the cross and Christ's sacrifice. Verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily in the and offered repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time 
waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those. Who does that refer to? It's talking about us. Those who are being sanctified. What his likeness in comparison is, is here's a high priest of the Old Testament, here's a priest of the Old Testament, standing in the tabernacle day after day and later on in the temple, and every time someone would bring a new sacrifice in, someone would bring another goat or a bull, somebody would bring another sheep, somebody would bring another sacrifice, two turtle doves, and as people are continually offering these things, that priest... A priest gets a whole lot like I am sometimes where you don't know which way it is up and you're, you're running to and fro and you're trying to take care of this. A lot of, I, I can't imagine being a waiter in a restaurant. I, my mind doesn't work like that and I can't remember, okay, this table needs water, this table needs bread, this table needs extra queso, whatever it is, and you're trying to run around, try and take care of all those things. Those waiters, they don't have much time to sit down. That's kind of like the Old Testament priests. Those Old Testament priests were always up working and doing and trying to bring at atonement for sins. The work that our high priest did, did one time when he offered himself. And Jesus, after offering himself that one time, sat down at the right hand of God. You know what the implication of that is? His work is finished. It's complete. It's done. And he did it so that you and I could be drawn near to God. Friends, do you see the work of Jesus? Isaiah 53, verse 6, says, God took the iniquity of us all and he laid it on him. That suffering servant passage is all about Jesus and all about how he died for you. Friends, if we're going to stand looking with the right mindset at who we are and who our neighbor is, and certainly the people that we're sitting with in this room this morning, we've got to understand the loss of the cross. What I want you to understand also, number two, are the lessons from the cross. That his example in dying is for us. His lessons in dying are the example for us. If I were just to quickly ask you, what does the Bible say about giving? What does the Bible say about sacrifice, about giving? What does the Bible say about a husband and a wife and their relationship? What does the Bible say about, uh, about Christian service and, uh, and the way that we serve one another? What does the Bible say about, um, um, about a way that a slave is to treat his master? What does the Bible say that, about the way that the master is supposed to treat his, his servant or his slave? Well, you can start quoting verses to me. You can start uh, looking at those aspects of, of, of relationships. Maybe you could start talking about husbands and wives getting along and husbands and wives uh, um, learning to communicate and respect one another. I would say, yeah, absolutely. But what's amazing to me is when you look at the New Testament and almost most all situations, I'm not going to say every situation because I just as soon as I do, somebody's going to say, well, uh, Andy, you forgot about this exception over here. In the majority of cases, you know what the standard for how we treat one another is and how we deal with Christian conduct and Christian character? The standard that the most New Testament writers refer back to is what Christ did on the cross. That's amazing to me. And it's something that maybe I knew intrinsically, but I just never really thought about. But as I thought about that for this lesson, this is true. Think about this. Your Christian service and your humility and the way that you treat your Christian brothers and sisters, 
I could ask, and you could probably begin quoting Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you've been here on any given Sunday night, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, a one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what he's going to talk about and from verses 5 to verse 11? He's going to talk about the work of Christ and humbling himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's the mind, and that's the example when we talk about Christian relationships that we ought to have. What about sacrificial love? Well, we could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, is not, uh, does not seek its own, is not provoked. What Jesus would say, John 15 verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. There is an aspect of sacrificial love that absolutely points us back to the work that Jesus did on the cross. Well, what about if we ask about the question about godliness? What about godliness? How do, how do we just behave generally? What, uh, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, 5, verse 1 and 2, it talks about how he loved us. He says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us and sacrifice or an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, what about husband and wife relationships? We ask about that. Same context, same chapter. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23. Husbands, love your wives, even as, here's your example, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your husbands, just as the church does to Christ, what about giving? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it talks about the giving of the Macedonians. Yes, but you know what? He says because they first gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave and they gave above and beyond what they were able to do. He says just like Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that Jesus sacrificed himself. Jesus took the loss so that we could have the riches. He's the example in our giving. He's the example in our suffering. 1 Corinthians, or 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and following, talks about the fact that if we've suffered with him in the flesh, we need, or if he, because he suffered in the flesh for us, we need to arm ourselves with that same mind. What mind? The mind of suffering, the mind of Jesus, the mind that sent him to the cross. How do you suffer? Like Jesus. What about? Endurance, perseverance. Therefore, seeing as we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin so easily besets us and run with patience the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, did you hear that? Endured the cross, despising the shame. As we run our daily Christian walk, as we run our daily Christian run, as we run a Christian race, I'm mixing metaphors here, as we run and we follow faithfully the course that God has set for us. Friends, what the Hebrews writer says, if you don't run with the right motivation, if you don't keep your eye on Jesus, what's going to happen is I'm going to grow weary, I'm going to be discouraged, I'm going to want to throw up my hands and give up. 
In fact, in the same context, he would write to those Hebrew Christians and say, you haven't resisted yet to bloodshed. You haven't spilled your blood for the cause of Christ yet. He says, keep running, keep going, keep doing. As we talk about these things, friends, on those things, on those lessons, when we think about your conduct and my conduct, and what the perfect example is, and what the supreme sacrifice is that we ought to give, sometimes we're asking the absolute wrong questions. Is God really going to count Sunday nights? How much does God want me to give? Does God want me to come on Wednesday night? Does God care if I do this, or God doesn't care if I do that? What we want to know is where is the lowest amount of place that I can, I can put my devotion, my, my sacrifice, and still have God be pleased? We ask those questions sometimes, don't we? We make statements like it's better to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission. When, when Christian conduct, if these writers of the New Testament again and again and again point us back to the cross and point us to the sacrifice that Jesus made, and we look and we see what he bore for us, the loss that, that we endure based upon what he did, and then we begin to look as an example in our lives, in our Christian conduct, in our example, those questions begin to answer themselves, don't they? We look at the loss, we look at the lessons, but let's look at the likeness just for a moment as we look at the cross. This is his calling for us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 is a song that uh, we used to sing in the youth group that I was a part of. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have the loss, you have the lesson, but then you also have, just in the single verse, the likeness of how I'm trying to live my life. How I am living my life, crucified with him. As Jesus talked about what it would take to be his disciple... As Paul mentioned the, the pattern by which we obey the gospel, he says we are buried with him in baptism, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Friends, we live the crucified life. That's an oxymoron. Crucified, that's a death. We live the crucified life. Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. When you sacrifice something, it's dead to you. And Paul says you're a living sacrifice. That's another oxymoron. It's a contradiction when you look at the two terms because they're polar opposites, but that defines who we are and that defines what we do. Imagine what Jesus said and imagine the reaction of his disciples when they first heard this in Matthew 16, verse 24. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. You know what that is? That's a death sentence. Take up his cross and follow me. Luke, later on, would add the word, Luke 9, verse 23, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. When you look at what Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 say, we are conformed to his death. We're molded into the shape of his death. 
when we look at our lives and we changed our lives in a mold of, we asked the question, and I remember a popular book years ago that was called, What Would Jesus Do? Or it was uh, called In His Steps. And the major question of that was, WWJD, what would Jesus do? When in reality, when we look at our lives and we look at our focus, we have to ask the question, WDJD, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? How do I go and how do I treat that person that sins against me? When I have this person that commits this great wrong against me, you know what I want to do? What I want to do is I want to blast them up one side and down the other. I want to make them feel as bad as they made me feel. You know what Jesus did? Jesus went to the cross. You know what I need to do? I need to go to the cross. I need to take the loss and say, Father, forgive them. I forgive you. Even as God and Christ forgave you, so you must also do, Colossians chapter 3. When I have people that get under my skin and that irritate me, you know what I want to do? I want to get mad. I want to fling things at them. I want to do those things. I, I have this feeling and this reaction. You know what Jesus did? Jesus went to the cross. When I have people that disappoint me, when I have friends that forsake me and disappoint me, I need to go to the cross. Because I'm following the steps of Jesus. I'm living a crucified life. And what you did when you became a Christian is said, I'm going to give up everything for the sake of knowledge of Christ. I want to follow in his footsteps. I want to suffer and I want to endure hardship because I realize the exaltation of Christ is ultimately going to be my exaltation. God set him at the right hand of God and gave him the name that's above every name. God took Jesus from this point of sin and this point of death and he exalted him. Ephesians chapter 1. God lifts us up and he exalts us to sit with him. Ephesians chapter 2. And as we think about our lives, friends, the only way that we're going to be great, the only way that we're going to experience the greatness of heaven is to live crucified lives. What Paul said on a number of different occasions, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 31 I affirm by the boasting of you which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die daily. Paul said every morning I wake up. Every morning I wake up and I think I'm following Jesus. I'm walking in his steps. I want to behave as he behaved. I want to look to his examples and the examples of him dying and how he died and the ways that he conducted himself whenever he was reviled and whenever he was scorned and whenever he was uh, uh, mocked. And I'm going to die to myself because I'm going to pick up that cross. I'm going to follow after him. Every day I want to behold the man on the cross and realize that I have no greatness in and of myself except by what he's done, the greatness of what he's done and what he's made me in him. And we look at our lives. We look at our lives. And they can be best summed up by Galatians 6 and verse 14. God forbid. God forbid that I should consider myself great. God forbid that I should boast in anything. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. Friend, the calling for a Christian is living a crucified life. 
because we're walking in his steps. And as we walk in his steps, we're going to experience the same things that he experienced. We're going to experience people that don't understand. And people that all they can do is just laugh and mock and jeer and look at us and say, you poor, stupid, pitiable Christians. And they're going to treat us like, like, like we don't belong because we don't. Jesus said you're in the world, but you're not of the world. They're going to treat us like they treated him. But as we keep our eyes fixed on the man who is on the cross, what I know, what I know, what I know more than anything is that the glory that was his is going to be the glory that is ours because that's what sent him there in the first place. Look at yourself and realize the only thing that we have to boast in is what Jesus has done for us. But as we begin to look around and start comparing ourselves to others and think, well, we're in the greatest nation, or I've got the greatest bank account, or I drive the greatest car, or I'm, I'm greater than this person, or I'm less great than this person, and we start to try and rank and compare ourselves, we're taking our eyes off of the cross, and we're judging based upon worldly, earthly matters that are all going to pass away. The only thing that's going to make a difference in your life, lastingly, is what God says you are through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? Do you know him? Sure, a lot of us know of him. And we spend our lives sometimes studying in our Bible classes about Jesus, about what he did, about how he ministered to the last, the least, and the lost, the book of Luke. About how he came and he, he gave his, his directions to people that, that knew the old law. And yes, I, I can quote uh, Matthew 16, verse 24. Deny self, take up cross daily, follow me. Yes, I can quote John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But my question is, do you know him? Are you following in his footsteps, church? Are you making every single day, pattering your life, and living a crucified life? Or do I find myself that I just pop off at the mouth? Anything displeases me, I'm going to let you know about it. Anything irritates me, I'm going to tell you. When what we need to do is remember that we're living a crucified life. Because that's our Lord. You don't need to know about him. You need to know him. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying knowledge is not important. Absolutely, the only way that your conscience is going to be educated and know the difference between right and wrong and the ways that you ought to behave versus the ways you ought to behave is by knowledge of God's word. But this is not something that I can keep at an academic level and expect that it's going to make the required difference in my life. What I need to know is what it feels like to follow in the steps of Jesus what I need to know is the difference that it made in my life and your life. And every day I need to transform myself. I need to die daily. I need to die to self daily. Take up my cross and follow him. Keep your eyes on the cross. Let's stand and sing.